Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Taha Lokandwala and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Mike Schozer, Chief Investment Officer at Hadrian's Wall Capital, which runs Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments. Over the last few years, a number of funds focused on alternative areas of the debt markets have launched, such as Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments. These typically have a closed-end structure, so are listed on the stock market, and invest in various types of debt, but generally not the mainstream types of corporate bond funds that conventional bond funds focus on. Mike, what kind of debt does Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments invest in? Our focus is on secured loans to what I'll call mid-sized SMEs. Small to medium-sized enterprises. Yes, but one has to be careful with that term. There are about 5 million small businesses in the country, of which most are sole traders. When you look at companies that might have revenue of 5 to 50 million where we focus, there's only about 50,000 of them. So our focus is those 50,000 or so companies who have turnover of 5 to 50 million. Okay. So what kind of industries do the companies that you lend to operate in? We're actually industry neutral. Our focus is on secured lending. So we recognize that in these these smaller companies, uh, they do, with a statistical amount of frequency, default. Uh, we accept that. We recognize that. So our focus is ensuring that we have strong security for our loan. So when a default occurs, we can access our security and monetize it to recover the loan we've extended. Okay. A bit like a, a mortgage end on um, a house, I suppose. A, a bit. Yeah. Yes. That's actually a fair analogy. Mm. So what kind of um, assets could you potentially seize if they defaulted? Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. We did one transaction for a small business who owns three gas station mini-marts in small villages. Yeah. We've done another transaction for a company who manufactures specialty fasteners. So if you need a three-meter titanium bolt for an offshore oil rig, Mm. this company specializes in that sort of high-technology fasteners. Okay. Now, you said, obviously, um, when you pick in companies to enter, you don't pick them by industry. Um, so, obviously, your industry exposure breakdown is a, is a result of who you lend to. But um, which industries currently do you have um, exposure to via the loans? We have exposure to a range of industries, including manufacturing, certain service industries that have a lot of assets, uh, companies in the healthcare sector, companies in the commercial real estate sector, companies in pretty much most industries which have some degree of assets. As I said, our focus is very much ensuring that we have collateral for our loans. Okay. And roughly how many loans does um, Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments have exposure to? About 20. Okay. So quite concentrated relative to some funds. Um, I suppose on that note, how does Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments compare to the sort of conventional corporate bond funds that perhaps our listeners are a bit more familiar with? 
All debt instruments are debt. So in a very broad brush, debt is debt. But there's a wide range, ranging from credit cards to home mortgages, which you mentioned, to auto loans, to corporate loans. Our focus is on these companies with this 5 to 50 million turnover. If you're looking at a debt fund, you might be looking either at an investment grade fund or a high yield fund, which typically would hold non-investment grade assets. Each of those have different characteristics. Many today are seeking returns based on trading, uh, that they are able to buy and sell bonds, which are fairly liquid, at least the ones held by most of the funds, and earn a profit by buying a company at one price and sell at another. Our focus is holding loans for the entire life of the loan. So it's a kind of different pattern. It's a different group of borrowers and a different basis on generating a return. We're not reliant on our trading. We're focused on the interest income from the loans. Okay. So I suppose key question, why should investors consider putting their money into the kind of loans that um, Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments provides exposure to? In any investment decision, the most important thing is to think of asset allocation. So from an investor's standpoint, if you're developing a portfolio, ideally, you'd like exposure to a range of different asset classes. And so I wouldn't argue that our fund is better or worse than another fund or another investment proposition. What I'd say is it forms a part of a well-diversified portfolio for those investors for whom this fits. And what I mean by that is our investment profile and our return profile is fairly low volatility with relatively high cash dividends. And that fits in with certain profiles. It would not, for example, fit if you were seeking as an alternative to high tech where you're looking for a large capital gain. Okay. Now, you mentioned you uh, aim for high um, income and uh, you aim to pay out a dividend of 6p a year. Have you been meeting that target? We have. Right. And do you think that going ahead um, in whatever the investment climate throws up, do you think you'll be able to continue to pay 6p a year or perhaps even increase that? Our goal is clearly to meet our dividend target. Currently, the invested assets of the fund yield about 9%, which provides a return higher than that. Um, as we mature, because the fund is only two and a half years old, we would anticipate paying about 85% of our income out as dividends and retaining about 15% to invest in growth of NAV, all subject, of course, to uh, the object reaching the target objective of 6p per year. Okay. I mean, that all sounds good, but of course, there's always two sides to things. So what are the main risks of investing in the kind of loans that Hadrian's Wall Secured Investments uh, offers exposure to? The principal risk relates to my comment of security. We do know that certain loans default. Our focus is having a strong security package so that, in fact, we can recover. So the number one risk, in my view, is recovery. When a loan defaults, will we be able to recover a very, very high percentage of that loan amount? Thinking about other sort of fixed income issues, um, we've 
recently had an interest rate rise, um, and there could be some more. Um, this can be a problem for with debt sort of securities and debt investments. What effect could further interest rate rises have on Hadrian's Wall secured investments? If let me break that into two parts because you mentioned fixed income funds. Traded funds are generally marked to market. So the trading value changes every day. Um, we hold our assets to maturity. So you wouldn't see a change in interest rates cause volatility in our NAV. It would present the opportunity for us to raise our rates uh, because our rates would move, would be expected to move more or less in step with changes in interest rates. Would that risk uh, an increase in defaults if uh, your bonds couldn't meet those payments? Generally speaking, I don't think the interest rate cost for our borrowers is that important. Unlike, for example, consumers with floating rate mortgages where a 3% increase in interest could have a very serious effect on a lot of individuals, a 3% interest in our borrowers would not have as much of an effect I think a bigger risk overall would probably be general economic uncertainty. Okay. Um, On that note, um, if and when the UK leaves the European Union, there could be a negative impact on the revenues and profits of UK smaller companies as these have created domestic exposure. You obviously lend to these. Um, Do you anticipate an increase in defaults um, on loans uh, you know, should this be the case? I think it's inevitable that Brexit is already having and will continue to have a negative effect on the economy. When we look at the companies to whom we lend, we consider what is their exposure to exports, what might be their exposure to industries that might be particularly sensitive to Brexit, such as the auto sector. And Our goal is to identify companies who either have a domestic market which will be fairly resilient in the face of an economic downturn or companies whose customer base is insulated from it, such as I mentioned the specialty fastener company who has a high-technology specialty product which they sell around the world and is insulated from most domestic economic changes. Okay, Is there anything else you do to try and mitigate the um, general risks of the area you invest in? That boils down to, in the first instance, thinking about the company's resilience. And in the second instance, thinking about whether or not and to what degree our security could be adversely affected. For example, while we don't lend to... uh, individual mortgages, if you were lending in central London for 10 million pound flats, one would think that would be riskier as a consequence of Brexit than lending on 200,000 pound row houses in Manchester. Okay, some important considerations. What are the other things you um, do when um, going about choosing the um, loans uh, that you invest in? We go through a due diligence process that starts when we first look at the loan. We do not call on these individual companies ourselves. We work with a wide range of corporate finance intermediaries, and they would we 
they would show us a loan. We would look at it. If we were interested, we would start a dialogue with the company, which would include a first-level due diligence process. If we had agreed what the terms of the loan might be, then we'd embark on a far more detailed due diligence process, which typically would include uh, due, due diligence of the borrower, retaining valuers to assess the security and its value, and under what ter- under what terms, conditions, and timeline we could sell it and realize cash from it. Because when we think about security, we th- there are several aspects to that. First of all, do we have the legal right to get to it? Second, can we generate cash from it? And thirdly, over what time horizon will we be able to generate cash? And how much uncertainty is there associated with that cash realization process? Okay, quite a, a process. Now, funds typically name their 10 largest investments on their fat sheets or websites, but you don't actually name the companies you make loans to. Why is that? We do list the transactions and amount and a brief description on our website. We don't disclose the individual names because many of these companies are private. Uh, many of the f- way they the f- their financing they view is confidential, and so we respect that. Okay, thank you, Mike. A really interesting insight into your fund and the small to medium-sized enterprise loan sector. There are over a thousand companies listed on European stock exchanges, which provide a strong hunting ground for growth. But despite this, UK investors tend to have a limited exposure to this wealth of opportunities. Taha, you've been looking at this area. Why is this the case? It's, it's quite interesting. I'm not entirely sure as to why um, this is particularly about private investors do this. So, But you, you can see anecdotal evidence in the portfolio clinic and when you speak to people and what people are buying via the platforms. It's kind of seen as if it's a bit box-ticking. Like, you know, everyone thinks, well, we have to diversify, we have to have a European fund, but there seems to be no real detailed thought as to how you then gain exposure to the best of these thousand companies. So... For example, most people either buy Jupiter European or Crooks European Special Situations, or sometimes they buy both, but it's mainly focused around one, two, perhaps three or four funds. And it's it's quite interesting because if you look at Europe, like Jupiter European, for example, is a very concentrated fund, so you're not getting more than 40 stocks in there. But you look at some of the businesses around Europe, some of the smaller ones, the medium ones that are growing, or even the large ones like Airbus. If Airbus was a UK-listed stock, most of our readers would probably buy it directly. But if they're buying Jupiter European, they're not getting any exposure to a company that's, you know, dominates half the, the world's aviation market. So it's, it's interesting as to why that's going on. OK. Um, and what would be the main reasons for investors to try and broaden exposure to Europe? So the, the main, I mean, it's down to the basics of diversification. Uh, so in the in the magazine on the website, I blended some portfolios together. They blended large caps, small caps, mid caps, growth stocks, value stocks, and kind of looked at how these different weightings these different styles and different cap sizes did over time and if you blended no matter what you did if you blended medium and small caps you got a better return over the last 10 years than you did if you just kind of either bought one single style or so if you just had value if you just had growth or if you just had the broad msci europe x uk index so it also like it shows you that over the long term you're going to get better returns but what's more important is that you're also getting uh, risk adjusted returns what that means is you're actually getting the best returns for the least volatility and the least maximum drawdown 
Okay. Um, these results obviously uh, looked at what might happen if you do this at index level. What kind of results do you get by blending active European funds? So this is this is where it gets quite interesting because obviously you have you have a huge variable of returns from different fund managers, different strategies. So I well, I took Jupiter European, which is I think by all accounts the most popular European fund, and one of the best performing and, too. And absolutely, yeah. yeah there's no a good justification that Alexander Dalwell, the manager, is a, a superb stock picker. Um, but again, it's quite concentrated. So I blended it with the Crooks Fund, which I mentioned earlier, which is very different. So uh, Alexander Dalwell is concentrated, high growth, large cap. Uh, Crocs, which is run by Richard Pease, um, he takes a very much more blended approach. It's kind of a, a core equity fund in the sense that it does quite a lot of things. It's got value, it's got growth, it's got mid, it's got small, it's got large, it's got it's got everything in there to varying degrees of proportions. But what's interesting is, so if you put these two funds together, what you do is actually you actually lose return because over the nine years, uh, which I had to do for nine years because that's how long the Crocs fund has been around, um, you would have been better off just investing in the Jupiter European fund. So it's kind of hard to then say, well, actually, no, you should be blending portfolios because, well, you would have lost return. But at the same time, you have to consider other factors such as what would have happened in a different scenario. Okay, can you elaborate on that a bit? Because like you said, um, well, if it's just better to hold Jupiter European, why not just hold Jupiter European, you know? So when, when you break down the return profile throughout, so if you look at the nine years as a whole, which again is important to do, but it's also important to see what happened in between those nine years of different bits. So... From February 2016 to kind of March 2017, value investing was very much uh, in vogue. It was it was a great time, and that wasn't just in Europe; it was the UK and globally. Um, the Crooks Fund did a lot better uh, than the Jupiter Fund, and in fact, if you had a blended portfolio in that time, you would have done better off than being a sole investor in the Jupiter European Fund. And why it's important to think about blending is because this data only looks at the last ten years, and which is quite quite a very in the grand scheme of things, a small period of time to look at things because it's been one style, one strategy that has done well. And Alexander Darwell has picked the best of those companies, but they are just one type of company that he's buying. Uh, I guess the old adage, past performance is no guide uh, to absolutely, future performance. Yeah, indeed. You can use this in many ways. So and don't put all your eggs in one basket, to put in another cliche. No, indeed. Yeah. yeah. But okay then, um, how do you go about selecting complementary Europe funds? So the, uh, different people have different ideas of how to do this, but I think the the core thing that I, I got from speaking to some kind of fund selectors who, who do blend these the funds in the way that I've described is you don't start actually by looking at, oh, I need a value manager, growth manager, large manager, small manager. What you want to start is by finding the best managers. So, for example, one person I spoke to said that they just look at the top 15% of funds because they are looking for consistent outperformers in terms of the benchmark, consistent outperformers in terms of their peers, but also managers who do really well on the downside. So their volatility is lower than the benchmark and their peers and their maximum loss and drawdowns are lower than that as well. So once you've found good managers that way, then you start looking at the best ones going, okay, well, if I... If I buy this fund, and then what is the kind of correlation if I buy the next best fund as well? And then correlations are important. So in the models I run, which again, you can see in the magazine, I, I took Neptune European Opportunities, which is a kind of really high level value strategy. This is core value, sorry, deep value. Um, that only has a correlation with the Jupiter European Fund of 0.65. Now, that's amazing considering they're both investing in European equities. Like that is a what I would consider to be a very low correlation for two people that are essentially buying the same thing. Um, so that you look at that and you think, okay, that actually, 
considering that Rob Burnett, the manager of the Neptune Fund, is a very good value manager, and you have Jupiter European run by Mr. Darwin, which is a very good growth manager, that makes an excellent blend. And yeah, that's the kind of the way you have to look at things. Okay. Now, is there anything you should try to avoid doing when using more than one fund to get exposure to a region? Um, a lot of a lot of listeners, and I thought about this, and I do this in my own portfolio, is you think about stock overlap. Mm. Um, so stock overlap is important, but I think based on what people have said to me, it isn't the most important. So it's something to definitely note to see whether your managers are buying the same stocks. One, because if they are buying exactly the same stocks, then you're not diversifying, and that should be fairly obvious to you. But also, like you're buying these managers based on their stock-picking ability. So if they're both picking the same stock, there could be two different reasons to why they're, they're buying it. So that's it's not necessarily a problem. But what you shouldn't do is use stock overlap as a reason not to buy a fund. So you shouldn't, let's say, you know, Adidas is in the, the Jupiter European fund and you're looking at another fund to blend and go, oh, well, he's got Adidas. So sorry, that fund's got Adidas. I'm not going to buy that. That should never be a reason to not pick a fund. Okay, thank you, Taha. And you can read his full report on how to choose complementary funds to get the most out of European equities in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle and the website. As an investor, you're probably very focused on buying opportunities and always on the lookout for good funds to add to your portfolio. But knowing when to sell a fund is arguably as important as knowing when to buy one. The problem is there's much less information on how to do this. Emma, why is this? Well, quite frankly, it's just because the industry has an incentive to recommend funds for you to buy. Because the more you buy funds, the more that they can charge you for the privilege of of holding that funds. So there's much more information on which funds are doing well, which funds to buy. There's very little out there for investors um, trying to understand when to sell a fund. Okay, so what might be a reason to sell a fund? Well, performance is an obvious one, and it's certainly something that, you know, investors often use. Um, There's various ways you can do this. You can look at absolute performance in terms of how the funds um, performed against its benchmark. And some of the people I spoke to actually like to look at relative performance. So if a fund has underperformed its sector average for more than two quarters, for example, um, they think it's a good idea to sell. Why is it not a good idea to sell a fund on the basis of performance? Well, I think, you know, what we were just talking about with um, Taha's article is really interesting because it shows the power of style in terms of how a fund is going to perform. So we all know that growth has performed very strongly over the last 10 years. And that means that funds that would invest with a value style have tended to do worse, at least if you compare them to growth style funds. And that's one example of when performance is is not necessarily the best thing to just um, focus on because there actually could be other factors as to why a fund hasn't performed as strongly compared to other funds. Okay, so why else might you consider selling a fund? I mean, there are really lots of reasons. Um, A big reason would be if there's been a massive um, change to the strategy or if the fund's manager has changed. Both of those are very good reasons to consider whether or not you want to continue owning a fund because... If there's been a change in manager, they might have a different process. They might just work in a different way and that could have an impact on performance going forward. Likewise, if there's been a change to the strategy, then arguably the fund has has changed very differently to the original fund you bought. So both are reasons to look at a fund and to consider whether to sell it. Okay, so how soon should you take action when you find out that the manager of a fund you hold is leaving? Um, I think it's a really interesting question because... Um, it happens quite a lot. You know, we all know that fund managers move around a bit and sometimes investors can get quite 
anxious and want to rush to sell a fund. But actually, you do have quite a bit of time to decide whether or not you want to stick with the, the fund, even though the manager's going, or sell it. And that's because usually managers have a lengthy notice period. I think the minimum would probably be about three months. Sometimes it can be as much as a, a year. So the funds are not actually going to change very much. Obviously, the manager's going to have such a, a long notice period to serve initially. Another issue is even if a new manager takes over, they might not actually change the process very much. They might be using a very similar or the same process with everything else staying the same. So it just depends whether or not you want to um, stick with the new manager, see how it goes and or decide to follow the old manager. So really, you've got time to consider these things. Okay. Now, are there any other kind of changes that mean you should sell a fund? Um, I think another important one is basically your portfolio review, which is something that investors should be doing on a regular basis. And basically, that's looking at your portfolio as a, as a whole, looking at your asset allocation across different funds, the risk that you're taking in different funds and other assets you own, and considering whether or not that's working for you and whether or not you should be changing anything. And sometimes as a result of looking at that, you can see that a fund perhaps has got more high risk from when you first bought it, or your circumstances have changed. For example, like, um, you know, you've had a redundancy, unfortunately, and that means you have to take less risk. And as a result of that, you might need to move out of higher risk options. So that's another reason to, to sell. How often should you review your portfolio? I think that at least once a year is a good um, suggestion. Some people do that more often. I've had uh, spoke to analysts who suggested once a quarter. It really depends on how active you want to be and how much time you can devote to it. But I'd also say that it's important not to do it too often because if you're going to be changing your found your portfolio around um, too often, it can actually lead to increased costs through trading, for example. So there's there's ways um, there's various factors you should consider, but I think at least once a year is, is a good kind of um, rule of thumb. Okay, thank you, Emma. Some great portfolio management tips. That brings us to the end of today's show, but you can read Emma's full guide on when to sell a fund and see more on Europe and debt funds in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle of a website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.